Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film The Women from 1939 with my wonderful guests, Zoe Palco and Brianne Wilson. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today on the show, I have my friends Zoe Palco and Brianne Wilson. Hello, Hello. everybody. Hi, thanks for Hi. being here. Hi, Whee. thanks for having me. We watched the film The Women from 1939. Friends, what'd you think? Is it feminist? No. Is it enjoyable? <laughs> yes. As long as you're okay with like throwing some objects at the TV, yeah, then it's great. That's it's an enjoyable assessment. experience. Yeah, it's, it, it's definitely like it has a special place in my heart with my own relationship with it. And certain actresses, you can't not love their performances and just be like, oh, to be Rosalind Russell. So it's enjoyable, just also from the acting style and skills. And yeah, you're sitting there going, is this insulting? Is it not? What's happening? So it's confusing, but it's also fabulous. It's a feminist film that's also sexist at the same time. It, it manages to do both things. So Which that's is appropriate gift. for the playwright. It, like her whole history is very confusing. I did no research on her. So this is great because you're going to fill in my gaps. <laughs> She's really fascinating and it's insane. Dear Lord. Okay, great. So I'm going to give the plot synopsis for the people at home. This one's a tricky one, everybody, um, but it's a whole lot of fun. So this film, 1939, the year of like every big movie that came out ever we've talked about it so much on the show because we can't help it because 1939 was like the year of the film so 1939 this film's tagline like if you watch the original preview it's like it's a film about women but it's all about men that's kind of it's like <laughs> tagline. <laughs> yeah because <laughs> they were like how will we get men to see it if it stars women i know the film is about norma shearer's character mary and um, I just need to tell you all at the top of the film, they do like a sitcom style introduction to every single character because they're worried. They're like, oh no, we've never had this many women speaking in a picture. People at home are gonna get confused and they're not gonna be able to tell these women apart. So we need to know going in who these women are. So they give each like of the main women who star in it, they show their faces, they show the actress playing them, the character name, and then an animal that describes that character to just give you a little exposition going in. So like we get Mary and she's a doe. She's doe a deer, a female deer. Then we get Joan Crawford and she's a cheetah. 
Rosalind Russell's next. She's a cat. We have Joan Fontaine, who is a lamb. We have uh, Paulette Goddard, who is a fox. We have Mary Boland, who plays the Countess de Love. She's the monkey. We have Phyllis Pova, who's not famous, but she was friends with George Cukor, so they're like, you get in. Um, and she is a cow. The mother is an owl. And then um, we get little Mary. She's a fawn. And then Marjorie Maine. Zoe and I cannot avoid her in any of our films on this podcast because we just <laughs> love her. She's an ass. She's a donkey. And underneath the name of the actress is actually her husband's name. They are all listed as like Mrs. Stephen Haynes. Unless they're not married. But yes, they are listed as their husband's name. And then in parentheses below their husband's name is their first name. It's hard. It's hard. But it's fun. I don't know how it's so fun because it's hard. Anyway, so... That's just the start. We haven't even gotten into the plot synopsis, but we had to stop there because it's so bananas. It's just so crazy. So we meet Mary. Mary is just the most lovely human you can possibly imagine as played by Norma Shearer. She is everything you would want in a friend, in a human, in a partner. She's perfect, okay? And we find out that her husband, Stephen, is cheating on her with this woman, Crystal Allen, who is played by Joan Crawford. And we're not going to blame Stephen. This is not his fault, everybody at home, okay? This is not his fault. This is her fault because she stole him away. Mary's really upset about this because she actually loves her husband. Like, her husband's very wealthy, but she, like, legitimately loves him. And they do a very good job of breaking down, like, we could so be against her, but we see how much she loves him and how much this is hurting her. And we're like, oh, you poor kid. Oh, so it's like not just like society or money or any of that for her. Like it's it's love. So Mary finds out her husband's cheating on her. She has some really terrible friends. One of them is Sylvia Rosalind Russell excellent physical comedy in this film. But Rosalind Russell's kind of terrible and just wants to stir shit constantly and make everybody's life worse just for fun, just because she can. Mary's friends kind of get it out to the press that her husband's been cheating on her. And she's like, well, shit, I can't stay married to him now because everybody knows and this is embarrassing. So, oh, and also I should say her mother gave her some really awful advice that we're going to get into later. It's really, <laughs> really hard to hear. Um, oh, it's mama. really hard. Um, so uh, Mary ends up being like, you know what? I'm out of this marriage. I'm going to Reno. I'm getting a divorce. So that's what she does. She goes to Reno. She gets a divorce and somehow still also wants to be with her husband. It doesn't totally make sense because it doesn't have to. And then is shocked to learn her husband has married the horrible Crystal Allen. And while she's in Reno, she makes a bunch of cool new friends that are very funny. And one of them is the sassy Paulette Goddard playing Miriam. And she has stolen away Sylvia's husband. So rotten Sylvia, Rosalind Russell, uh, has lost her husband as well. Um, a, a cat fight does ensue between the two that is uncomfortable, but it's okay, whatever, we're gonna get past that. And um, so two years have passed, Mary is divorced. Uh, technically it's 18 months, but like two years on the whole, cause she has that line with the jungle red, which we'll get to. Um, so Mary through her daughter finds out that Crystal Allen is awful and Crystal Allen has been cheating on Steven and she's just all around terrible. So Mary's like, I'm gonna come up with a plan to get my husband back and break up their marriage. And she does, and it's great. 
and Rosalind Russell loses, and Crystal Allen loses, and Mary wins, and we're all really happy in the end. And the last shot of her is like her walking towards her husband with open arms, going like, Stephen, darling. There's a lot of great one-liners and comedy ensuing throughout, and the whole cast is women. There really is not a man in sight, and honestly, we don't miss him. I'm just going to say it. That is the women. Let's get into this movie. Um, this was one of the very first classic films that I got into. I remember at like 13 going to the public library and trying to find the play so I could like learn monologues from it for school and they didn't have it so I couldn't do it. But I just remembered really thinking it was so smart and so fun. And even 13 year old me was like, mm, I'm going to brush some things under the rug. But it really has some great female characters. I was in it. And I wish I could say I was Rosalind Russell. Unfortunately, I was like 16 different bit characters that like flitted in and out of the stage. And I had like 17 costume changes. And that was my experience with the show. Weren't you Miriam Ahrens? No. I thought you were. I wish I was. I was not. I'm shocked. No. But I had a really good time in it. That's for sure. It's really awesome being in a show with so many women. The dressing room was a really fun place to be. So it was just like a really fun experience just to be in that environment. I was in a production of The Women. That was my senior high school play. <sighs> it was one of my probably first experiences also of really watching a classical film through uh, like seeing leading women. I did play Mary Haynes. I just remembered feeling beautiful because we borrowed costumes from like a nearby theater. So wearing 1940s when you're an awkward but curvy 18 year old. And I was like, I look amazing in all of these. And learning really great acting skills in the back and forth in some of those scenes. Can I just say that your senior play, you felt so sexy, you're amazing. My senior play, we did Wind in the Willows and I was ratty and I had to black out all my teeth except for the first two. So similar experiences, you and I. What we've all said here is like, it's such a delight working with women. And so it's so interesting to me that the way it feels to like be a woman working with other women um, is not portrayed in this because this film portrays women as people who hate each other, who are enemies, who cannot count on each other or rely on each other, who's always trying to steal other people's men. And so like, um, sometimes with films, I'm like, oh my God, look at this gorgeous shot. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the symbolism. For this, it's mainly like the themes that I want to talk about because it's yeah. like watching it going, so what does this film say about women? The very first shot is two dogs fighting. Opening scene, bitches be fighting. That's what Crystal Allen calls everybody at the end. She's like, you all belong in a kennel. And then going through like the beauty parlor of just, and you just, you can't make out any sounds. It's just like, yep, 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 we've been talking. Bitches be fighting, bitches be yapping. In that first scene, not only do they establish that, but they also establish like classism of like oh, yeah. these wealthy women versus the women who are not wealthy. And I love that it shows a lot of the wealthy women as like terrible people. Like those are the people that are racist in this film. Like this film like had people of color in it in a lot of serving roles. Thank goodness it mm -hmm. wasn't so, it wasn't like very... Um, they didn't have to put on like an accent. It wasn't like a horrible stereotypical kind of thing, but they made a point of showing like, if you're an mm -hmm. awful person in this film, you're gonna treat someone of color as less than you and terribly. 
the people of color in this film don't have a lot of big moments, but something I did notice was that, but also like the integration, how um, women of color work with white women. You know, I was really like, oh, that's cool. Like, it sucks that they're gossiping, mm -hmm. but how cool is it that they're all gossiping together? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll take that like two second long scene. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out that little modern lens snippet that like, yeah, if you're a monster, you don't treat people of color well in this film and we're going to judge you for it and we're going to notice it. And one of, one of those shop girls was Butterfly McQueen in her first film. Yeah, it's hard with Butterfly McQueen because of what she ends up having to like represent because of Gone mm -hmm. with the Wind. Yeah. But it's funny to me because we just did Mildred Pierce like last season. Yeah, and so Joan Crawford and Butterfly McQueen star in that and she Butterfly McQueen is treated like terribly <laughs> in that. And so to watch her kind of be equals with Joan Crawford, I'm like, yes. Joan Crawford's rude to her in this because, you know, she's a terrible person we've established. Yeah. And so at least Butterfly McQueen did not have to like, I don't know, she wasn't in her quote unquote prissy mode that she had to be in for Gone with the Wind, which is like awful. So at least we had, you know, they are equals. They work together. Uh, so at least we had that for like one one tiny baby second. So I did want to put that out there. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, the conversation she has with her mom. And I want to talk about like just the gaslighting of Mary Haynes. George Cukor directed Gaslight. And I was like, oh, you mean like how they're gaslighting Mary into thinking cheating is totally normal? So the conversation Mary has with her mom in the middle of the film, her mom comes in and her mom's like, oh, I'm the wise old owl. I'm so sorry your husband's cheating on you. By the way, did you know that your father cheated on me and that cheating is perfectly normal and every man does it and it's his right to do it to you? Because he's a man. He works hard and he's hapless at the same time. He both is very smart, but is also very stupid. He can't discern women's wiles, yet runs a corporation. So, yes, anyway, that's my whole separate side note on Stephen, which we're also going to talk about. But the mom basically says to Mary, look, kid, this is how you should handle it. Say nothing. Isolate yourself. Don't talk to your friends or tell them about it. Don't take their advice about it. They're not looking out for you and they want you to get divorced and they want to see you fail. And what was her last piece of advice? It was all awful. Leave town and just suck it up and deal with it. Like, isn't something around keeping your daughter away? Yeah, it's like, well, think of your daughter. If you get divorced, your daughter won't be, she won't have two parents. Your Every mm -hmm. child needs two parents, a man and a woman to raise them. And I was like, oh God, wow. That's the one where she ends with like, I'm an old woman, dear, and I know my sex. She also talks about like sprawling out like a swastika at another time. So we know that she's problematic. This is 1939. Germany was a thing. Were swastikas completely tainted at that point? Right? I wondered where in the timeline yeah. this was in 1939. I swear to God, I almost saw the mom after she said it go like, ooh, I don't know. That's ooh. say that. They kind of cut away. I was so fascinated with that scene too. Like I clocked way more than I did at 18 years old. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. It was fascinating that for 1939, Mary's response is like, but this is the modern times. I married for love. It's not, we're not chattel anymore. No, she says we're equals. And I'm like, yes, Mary, yes. For some, a woman in 1939 to even think she's an equal, it's like rife with white feminism. She's a very privileged woman. I'm so conflicted of like, yes, you're an equal, but are you not aware, not just of how in ways you're not equal, but obviously other women around you are not equal either. So I'm like, it's modern, but it's not. Let's break that down because there are, you're right, there's, it's like modern versus old fashioned all at the same time. So like, let's break down the modern because the modern to me is like, 
her believing she's an equal to her husband and that she deserves faithfulness. And that is a requirement in a relationship, despite everyone being like, no, no, no. So there's that. There's um, the divorce talk she has with little Mary is on point. That's a really good divorce talk. Like this is what divorce is. This is how it works. Yeah. And little Mary's like, I know people whose parents are divorced, making it kind of normal. I was like, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're talking about sex. It does definitely speak to the class issue because you can be divorced as long as you're wealthy. I'm sure like it's not the case if you're upper middle class, middle class, lower class. That's not the case at all. Um, but these upper class people are like, I got divorced four times. And it's like, fine. And it's a movie of all women. Written by women. The screenplay and the play, the screenplay is written by two women. It's Anita Luce and Jane Murphan, who are both established screenwriters. And Anita Luce even wrote the, the book, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. So she's like a successful writer. So is Jane Murphan. I'm going to read a couple things they did. So Anita Luce, don't know much about her personally, sorry. But she wrote like Saratoga. That's a famous film. Susan and God, Riff Raff, San Francisco, Redheaded Woman. These are all famous films. She wrote the screenplay for them. She wrote the book, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Gentlemen Marry Brunettes. And then Jane Murphan wrote, what, Price Hollywood, which George Cukor directed in his early days. And it's basically like a star is born before a star is born. She wrote Roberta, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers picture. She wrote Pride and Prejudice. She wrote Spitfire. She wrote Smiling Through. So like these are established female screenwriters who wrote this, who were like strong, smart ladies. We've got Claire Booth Luce, who is only Claire Booth in the credits of this. Um, but I know her as Claire Booth Luce. You know a lot about her. What's her info? She reminds me a little bit of Phyllis Schlafly. Oh, oh God. Okay, okay, okay. But she's this woman who was a writer and she was elected the House of Representatives. Like, So she was a politician. Just like this movie, I read things where I'm like, you are the most contradictory person. And the reason I give her like the Phyllis Schlafly comparison is these women who were actually in men's roles who are teaching women to just to the only thing you should want is to be married and have babies, which she did consistently also communicate that that's all women really want. Oof. So she was like against English colonialism. She tried LSD. There was a whole thing I read about her doing LSD. She was in an open marriage. She was divorced very young in her 20s. So she was a divorcee. She said that she identified most with Crystal Allen in her play because she doesn't believe Crystal Allen is supposed to be the villain. When I was like 13 and I saw this, I hated Joan Crawford for years because of this role mm -hmm. paired with um, seeing Mommy Dears for the first yeah. time around the same time. So I was like, oh, what, what an awful person. But when I was watching it again, I was like, oh, wait, hold on. Crystal Allen is just ambitious. The things that she wants, if she was allowed to like go into business and allowed to like pursue other things besides marriage, when like all of these women, their only job is allowed to be marriage. And that's so messed up. So if she had had an outlet, if she, if she had, had a way to make money, we'd probably be like, holy shit, look at Crystal. She is so cool. Look how she got to where she is. She was like, I just want some peace. Like, all I want is peace. And then she says to Norma Shearer at one point, she's like, you've got everything. You've got money. You've got a name. You've got security. Like, I was with her during that. I was like, yes. During so much of the movie, I wanted to just kind of like eye roll and shake Mary. It's like, come on, girl. And you want her to like get a backbone and like have more of that, you know, drive for herself and that ambition for herself, you know, and she doesn't have that. And Crystal does. And more so than I've ever felt that last time I saw this movie was forever ago. 
I was like, Crystal, Crystal, yes. At the end, when she gets defeated, she didn't do the whole, like, I hate you, I hate you, my life. She's like, all right, well, back to the back to the counter, I guess. It was worth well, a shot. Well, the reason we're supposed to think she's a villain, I guess, is because she is two-faced about her intentions. But if she was going for, like, a real job and was trying to work her way up, like, a corporate ladder, I don't know, those things when men do them are seen as fine, so she'd probably be fine. So I have a couple more fun facts about Claire Booth, her second marriage with Mr. Luce, I did not write his name down, uh, <laughs> which is fine because apparently they also had an open marriage. And so her rumored lovers include Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy of the Kennedy family, Randolph Churchill, General Luce, Lucian K. Truscott Jr., General Charles Willoughby, and this is my favorite fact, Roald Dahl, who- Who is anti-Semitic. Who's anti-Semitic. <laughs> But apparently, while Roald Dahl was stationed during World War II, he was actually being sent to seduce her, to spy on her, and then apparently claimed that she physically exhausted the like six foot six Roald Dahl because of how sexually demanding she was. Oh my God. Who knew? So again, where I'm like, she actually, she has this insanely sexist movie claims women should just not just in this play movie but even when she was on the house of representatives that that's what women she campaigned for things that were very anti-women she lived this like very progressive life as a woman it's like it's saying to me she was the first woman of congress to win the medal of freedom so this is like a big blurb about her so revered in her later years as a heroine of the feminist movement Luce had mixed feelings about the role of women in society. As a Congresswoman in 1943, she was invited to co-sponsor a submission of the Equal Rights Amendment offered by Representative Louis Ludlow of Indiana, but claimed that the invitation got lost in her mail. Like Phyllis Schlafly vibes. Luce never ceased to advise women to marry and provide supportive homes for their husbands. During her ambassadorial years at a dinner in Luxembourg attended by many European dignitaries, Luce was heard declaiming that all women wanted from men was babies and security. Yet, her own professional career as a successful editor, writer, playwright, reporter, because I think she worked for Vanity Fair or Vogue or something, like really high up there also like magazines, legislator and diplomat, remarkably showed how a woman of humble origins and no college education could raise herself to an escalating series of public heights. Luce bequeathed a large part of her personal fortune of some $50 million to an academic program, the Claire Booth Luce program designed to encourage the entry of women into technological fields traditionally dominated by men. Because of her determination and unwillingness to let her gender stand in the way of her personal and professional achievements, Luce is considered to be an influential role model by many women. Starting from humble beginnings, Luce never allowed her initial poverty or her male counterpart's lack of respect to keep her from achieving as much as, if not more, than many of the men surrounding her. In 2017, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. It's like amazing. And then she makes these claims in her career about what women want and scripts like this. But I don't understand that divide to not see that you're 
like the advantages that you have and like the life that you're living does not line up with what you're saying. It's like Republican senators who pay for their mistresses abortions because that's when it's okay. It's like that kind of thing. We were going over like what's modern, what's not. And you're right. She's a walking both modern and like old fashioned at once. She's a walking contradiction. And it's the, it's the queen bee syndrome. Like is, is the reason she claimed these things or, you know, what she promoted of what she thought women should be because she felt she was the only one and could own be the only one and didn't want other women to do the same as, like, she was <gasps> oh my special. God. So she's like a Sylvia Fowler. She's like, I must tear down all the other women. Whoa. Wow. She's fascinating. I want to, like, read her biography now. Like, I'm very fascinated by her. But that continues the list, because it's like, she is the modern and not modern. And then, but even the class stuff makes more sense now, because classism is a huge thing in this film. Huge. And it's so called out, and I love it when it's called out. Like, yeah. I don't even know what that fitness instructor said, I can't remember, but she <laughs> says something that's like, you're wasting all this money on this. Uh, she, it, what is, What's the one-liner? Do you guys remember it? She had a lot of quippy lines. Like a lot of the the worker people have a lot of little quips. It starts right from the very beginning when they're going through the salon. You can't really pick anything out. The few things you can pick out is that high class people are going yappity, 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 frivolous, stupid stuff that you can't either pick out. The things you can't pick out are supposed to be perceived as very stupid and very frivolous. And then the lower class people rolling their eyes and having little quips about it. And like, that's that whole opening sequence. It sets it up right away. And the high class people are married. So we're supposed to want to aspire to be that and be a moron. That's what we're aspiring to versus like the smart working quippy ladies. Whoa. And that's why I'm also confused about what actually, what does a movie want you to think? Like, what is the, what is the movie trying to make you believe about women and marriage? Like, I'm still trying to figure that out. Like, is it that Mary at the end needed to become one of those horrible, quote unquote, people that they've, they've been betrayed as mean and frivolous and stupid the entire film? Like the Sylvias, the Ediths, like all those like jabbering ladies. But she finally grows claws and becomes one of them. And then she wins. So is that the theme or is it throughout the entire film they talked about her as oh she's so nice she's so wonderful she's not like the other people in reno that come here she is amazing all their help is like oh i love her so much like she's obviously put on this other kind of plane of like she's a good person and all these other women are silly frivolous stupid women who just chatter on and bring each other down and she believes in love and she believes in her husband and she's a person you want to be in this movie but at the end, she changes. So it's like, was she always supposed to go back to her? Was she not supposed to talk like talk to her husband? Was she supposed to go claws? Yes, but also she's this person you want to be through the entire movie. And when she does actually get the divorce, all the movie does over and over and throttle you with is this is a stupid decision. You're making a bad choice. Go back, go back, go back on the train. Like every single thing is like, you shouldn't be doing this. This is dumb. Besides that first little like monologue she has in the beginning about we're equals. And we're like, yeah, every point after that, the movie consistently tells the viewer she's making a horrible decision. 
So what is the movie trying to moralize us to? I, what are they trying to tell us? Here's what I've got that I just figured out while you were talking. I believe maybe that when she was divorcing Stephen, it wasn't her authentic self doing it. So she was doing what she thought she had to do with her high moral compass because it didn't feel right to her to stay with someone that cheated on her, but she really did want to stay with someone who cheated on her. Maybe she's finally not caring what anyone else thinks. She's going to fight for what she wants. And what she wants is to go back with this loser. And she, but she really Just wants her prerogative. it. <laughs> right? So maybe right. it's her being true to herself finally, maybe question mark. But also a more modern take we have today also is like cheating is not the worst thing a person can do in a relationship. You know, with, with our views of monogamy now today too, or I'm like, I'm not necessarily gleaning that that's the message of, of it. But I was like, again, a contradiction. Like, is she saying there are far worse things you can do to a relationship than cheat? And that's kind of what, um, uh, what's, what's her butt who I can't escape from. Oh, Marjorie Maine, when she's like, my husband beats me. It's great. A lot of women deserve to get beat. As I was watching that, I was like, I think like the audience is supposed to really connect with what Miriam says. Like that's the lens. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're putting it through. When I was watching it, I was because she's like, all you ladies, you're complaining too much. You're, you're feel sorry for yourselves. You are, um, you're ridiculous. And like, I, and look at me, like my husband beats me, but I don't leave like that's, and then she's like, oh, here's beats you. That's horrible. And she's like, yeah, and she makes a joke about it. It's like, yeah, even though you guys deserve to be beat more than I do, okay. <laughs> like, which is hilarious. So, so funny. Um, We're saying ironically. So, so funny. so funny. But it's kind of like you privileged whiny women divorcing your husbands for no reason. And then the mirror is held up to her. It's like, oh, well, I'm beat and I still don't leave. And you're whiny bitches and you're leaving for, for nothing. You just reminded me of the line that the mom has about like, in my day, women couldn't get divorced and they dealt with it. And those were the good days. And I was like, ooh, let's not, let's not do that. Let's know it's great that women can get divorced. But I do also want to say, I think what we had said earlier that we didn't like totally get into is like divorces for rich people. And it's used all the time in films. Like so many films in the thirties have divorce as like a main theme in them and people flippantly getting divorced. And then by the end of the film, they're back together. So it seems to be like a very non-committal thing, divorce in the thirties. Whereas like, yeah, if you're, if you're poor and your husband beats you, you're totally screwed. You can't get a divorce. Even Crystal, she had to get caught cheating because she wasn't going to consent to a divorce. So yeah, I do want to add that back to the classes thing too. And I do want to say for me, cheating is still a big deal. So I think it's like what we're more open about today would be like if you're in a relationship, talking about that. No judgment on people who want open relationships. If that's what you guys want and you decide together, great. Right. But like, oh, yeah. I wouldn't choose that. So for me, I was watching it being like, yeah, I would be really, really hurt if my husband and partner that I loved cheated on me with Crystal yeah. Allen. Yeah, that would devastate me. I don't know what I'd do, but I, I totally get Mary's plight and her dilemma in that regard because, like, what happens when you really love someone and they betray you like that? And that was never part of Mary's plan either. Like, I'm going to go talk to him about this. It was either I keep it hidden and in my ivory tower per mom and I isolate myself and I'm just a little bit unhappy all the time or a lot unhappy all the time, um, but it's worth it. Or I say I'm out and I get divorced. There was no like, I'm going to have a conversation with the partner that I'm so-called equals with 
and figure out what we're going to do. That was never part of that dialogue in her brain. Don't they say at one point that she wants to have a conversation with him, though? Maybe she doesn't. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is just, I don't remember now. Is she? I think she said, like, I'm having an out. But then she's like, I'm done. I'm done, mother. I'm out. But she did make a point of, like, well, he's not going to appreciate what he has until we get divorced. And by gum was she right. Because Crystal is not great at being a partner. Because that's not what she signed up for. She just wants security. To her, that's what a marriage is. You know? that's If that's what she wants, that's right. great. But she had to find someone that was on board with that, too. You know? She's like, husband, I'll give you banging and then you give me all the other stuff I want. And that was the arrangement that she entered into. And then she thought that everyone would be there, happy There are plenty that. of people who still want that arrangement. Can we chat about how awesome Rosalind Russell is? We're not going to really talk about her life today. If you want to hear about Rosalind Russell's life, I talk about her a lot in Anti-Mame. So listeners at home, that. And then um, if you want to hear more about Joan Crawford, I talk about her and Mildred Pierce. We're not going to chat so much about their background today. But I do want to say that I have so much respect. I don't really know a lot about her husband, but I know from doing that podcast that her husband fell in love with her before he ever met her from watching this movie. And that makes me love their relationship because she is such a goofball in this. Like she's not being sexy or like putting on anything. She is going for her role 100%. And I'm so glad she was loved for it. She steals the movie. One of my favorite pieces of trivia is about Rosalind Russell and this role. She wanted it so badly, she auditioned five times. Like she campaigned for it because she was constantly second to Myrna Loy. Apparently she was told to play it very broad because she's breaking up a family. So if she did it too seriously, nobody would like her. So like she was basically told to like be ridiculous. And so she did. Rosalind Russell feels that like this movie and being told to like be ridiculous is actually what gave her her reputation of being a comedian. This movie changed her career because she was doing like dramas up till this point. And this allowed people to see her in, her in a whole new light. And like her most famous roles, like if you think about it, are this, um, His Girl Friday, Wonderful Town, and Auntie Mame, all super physically comedic, bold comedy females who are like, over a certain age. And she is incredible. I love her performance in this. Her physical comedy is just, it's perfect. She's so witty too. She's got it all covered. Um, some moments to look out for, some of my personal favorites are um, the exercise scene that she does with Joan Fontaine and the instructor where they're doing all the crazy leg things and the silly like movements that women have to do to keep themselves in shape and all of her gossipy moments. And then I think my favorite moment of hers in the whole movie is when she throws a plate tantrum. It's like a short moment, but she's like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And she starts breaking plates, but she does it so funny that you just have to keep rewinding it because of what she's doing in those moments to make it hilarious. She's just, she's with it, this one. The costumes they gave her too, to like accentuate that comedy, I mean, the eyes, everything she was wearing was so ridiculous. I noticed something this time that I don't remember if I noticed before, but there's the exercise scene when Edith comes up and Edith was compared to the cow earlier on and they have her in this headdress that makes her look like a cow. It looks like she has floppy cow ears. And then in that same scene, Rosalind Russell has the bow that's like a cat. And I went, oh my God, they're dressing them like the animals that they had portrayed in the beginning. And then earlier on, when they do that weird fashion sequence in the middle of nowhere that's in Technicolor, they put the monkey in the gown and then the Countess de Love is that monkey later. So they just have a lot of the animal tie-ins and the costumes and 
I noticed that this time and was like, oh, that's really clever. That's a very smart thing they did there. What a hilarious choice to just have a random fashion show in Technicolor in the middle of the movie. I think they were like, okay, a lot of women are going to see this. What do women like? What do they like? They like clothes. Yeah. We know that. So let's just do a five minute yep. clothing sequence for no reason and make it in color. Am I obsessed with the fashion? Yes. Do I find the whole thing patronizing yes. and insulting? <laughs> yes. Did I pick out my favorites? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I did pick out my favorite costumes. Oh, me too. Me too, of course. I really loved the cape moments. I was delightfully oh, yeah. weirded out by the plastic hands that would clasp on the cape. And like she put her gloves on and she put a, she crossed her chest and it looked like there were cabinet knobs. They're talking about a dress that has a, a literal hand sewn onto it that's like wood or plastic or something. And it is very unattractive. And also it's the same moment that they're culturally appropriating other things. So there's like a white woman wearing the Japanese look and a white woman wearing like the Mexican look. And you're like, please stop, please. They didn't know, I guess, but it was a weird. And the monkey, they have animals in the show, but they're throwing food at the audience. Cause it's, they're throwing it to the camera, but it's right. weird, the audience well, is And then the, the audience goes back to being cardboard cutouts. But it is really cool how we go in technically, like how we have the gray facade and then how we move into the Technicolor. But then when we pull out, the real black and white cinematography looks so different from the fake gray and white that they were just on. It is a little jarring. If I could cut anything from the movie, it would be that. And I mean, sexism. Um, and a lot of other <laughs> things, actually. But <laughs> um, but that leads us to maybe one of the best scenes in the whole film that we are all waiting for. The scene between Mary and Crystal when Mary confronts Crystal for the first time in the dressing rooms. Also, we're going to get to this, but I love how they were like, okay, so if there's no men... Where are the spaces that are only women? Because that's where all of our sets are going to be. What can we think of? Okay, we've got the spa. Okay, yes. Uh, we've got dressing rooms. Yes, they meet in dressing rooms. We have the powder room. We have the kitchen. We have the, you know, divorce house. Like, I love, I want to be there for that meeting where they're like, where are women with no men? We, wah. So yes, we're in a dressing room. <laughs> Picture yeah. it, dressing room. Yeah. Zips up the back and no bones. Oh, same woman who says, all men want from us is this. We have nothing to offer them. Same woman. What else do we have to give? Zoe, were you either of those? I think I was. Zip up the back and no bones. Yeah. Can I tell you, though, my I loved every character actress in this piece. The oh, character fantastic. actress acting was so strong, and I was obsessed with it. So I was into it. I mean, not what they were saying, but like how they were saying it, yes. It's okay. So we get into this scene. Um, Sylvia is always the one that pokes the bear and makes people do things that they don't actually want to do. So she has poked Mary into going into Crystal Allen's dressing room and they have their big confrontation with some of the best dialogue in the film. It is so smart. They are so clever with each other. As an audience member, you're like, will they ever meet? When will this ever happen? And so when they meet, it's like magic and sparks fly. And a little tiny part of me was like, could you two date? But I know that that would never happen, but it would be cool. Because they had really good chemistry. Fantastic chemistry. Leave Steven. <laughs> yeah, he's lame. Steven sucks. Let's see where this goes. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. I'm here for it. I think I wrote down the quote that Crystal had. Oh, like, what do you expect me to do? Break into tears and beg you to forgive me? Like, the whole movie, it never is about what Steven actually did. It's about how the women 
somehow caused it to happen. And this is like a prime example of that. It's never that Stephen actually did something to hurt his marriage. It's that either Mary didn't satisfy him enough or she was boring or, so, or and Stephen's like, that's just what men do. And Crystal, who had her talons in him, and it was, so it was her fault. Like, it's, it's not Stephen's fault. None of this is Stephen's fault, even though he's the one that did the cheating. None of it's his fault. And it's about what the women did or didn't do to manipulate that caused yeah. this. And then they have to fix it. Stephen doesn't have to do anything. We still do that today, though. We still, in the tabloids, villainize the other woman. We did it to Monica Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. We did it to Angelina Jolie with, you know, when it, with Brad and Jen. Like, with Angelina Jolie, suddenly she, yep. everyone turned on her. We've done it throughout history. And it's like, I think they get away with it in this too, because Crystal's like, yeah, I did this on purpose. Yes, I used these ploys and manipulation tactics to get my way. Show me why that's wrong. And it's like, it takes all the responsibility off of Steven, as Zoe was saying, like, because it was planned, quote unquote, it's like, well, she planned it. So she was going to get away with it no matter what, because he has no brains. Like he, he's a hapless, sad little man. He can't think for himself. Boys will be boys. Yeah. Like, it's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. There's one part where Crystal's like, are you disappointed? And she's like, no, you're more basic than I thought. And Crystal's like, you're more basic than I thought. <laughs> but then she, she, I wrote down the quote of like, you've got the name, the position, the money. And I wrote, these are Crystal's values. Um, she's like, you noble wives and mothers bore the brains out of me. And then the exchange of like, Stephen couldn't love a girl like you. And she goes, well, if he couldn't, he's a wonderful actor. And you're like, ooh. And then my last favorite one was uh, when she's like, just so you know, Stephen would never go for that outfit. And she's like, thanks for the tip. If he doesn't like what I'm wearing, I take it off. And you're like, oh, Crystal, that is a solid comeback. You have won this exchange. And I love that Steven doesn't think she's a bad person because she waited like three months to start buying things with his credit card. I like that to him, that's what a good person is. Right? He's re- she really is a good girl. She waited months before she took anything. But I did nothing. I am not to blame here. I yeah. was ensnared into a trap. A man trap. Oh my God. Okay. So it was a great scene. And then it leads us into the next best scene, which is the exercise scene, which we did talk about. Front up, front together, not together, down, off. Yeah, it combines the great, like, just physical movement and ridiculousness of it all and drives the plot forward because that's when Edith pulls that nonsense about dishing to a... The columnist lady who is played by Hedda Hopper later, which is great casting because Hedda Hopper was also a gossip columnist. But um, just her friends are really rotten. They're really rotten people. And I actually like when she makes her divorce friends, when Mary does, because those are like the first decent people that she meets that aren't trying to like manipulate her or use her or put her down. Yeah. But I really couldn't stand Joan Fontaine's character, Peggy. Her whole character arc was going from, I'm in love with my husband to like, I'm going to stand up for myself. And yeah, I should be able to spend my own money. And like, it's okay that I make more money than my husband. And then to being like, I'm going to listen to everything my husband ever says. I was writing notes as I was watching this. And I noticed like the further on I got in writing notes, I just put more and more ugh in my notes and it became longer and more frequent. And they became a lot, very frequent in that scene with Peggy. This whole movie could be played in a tone. If you put the right attitude on it, you could actually show that this is this could be a satire and actually be feminist and actually be like, this is bullshit. Yes, I think it could be. Yes. Like, literally, you don't have to change a thing. 
Don't have to change a line, but the intention. This is the project we all need to get on board with. And like things that you do with like the choices in the movements, you could actually like flip the whole meat. They did remake this in 2008 and I didn't see it. I did no, not see it. No, do not speak of it. Okay, I was like, but how did they, cause they, you can't update. That was why it doesn't work. Like there's two different remakes and both of them don't work because of the way they tried to do it. And that's why I'm like, do everything the same. And you have to keep it in 1939. The 2008 version, it is a script of its time. So these concepts about the difficulty to get divorced and what it means to get divorced and the way we look at relationships, like while we still let boys be boys and a lot of these undertones still exist today, which is why I think a satire is completely possible. You can't, some of those concepts that make the Reno even possible, the entire, that entire last act has to be of its time they apparently also tried to make an all-male version of it and no. then I was reading, oh god no I was reading the synopsis and I was just like but it doesn't work because nobody gives a crap about his wife is cheating on him and what is he well, gonna also because their livelihood isn't taken from their marital status so it doesn't qualify like, it doesn't matter i'm like oh no we don't have enough movies of just watching all men on screen we don't have enough of that you know what right. you're right actually we don't we don't have an i don't think i've seen enough film with majority white men 12 angry men needed more men there needed to be more that's you're right. And like, oh, that old ball and chain. We just don't get enough of that. I would really be down to see this as a satire, though. Like, now that you said that, I can't stop thinking about it. And again, you would need to add a fourth wall device and a very, it would be like a Jim Halpert office lens. And there would have to be like glares after, like everyone would stop and everyone would look at the audience and just stare for like a second. And then we'd all go back. Yes. In the script, so, which is a little bit different from the movie and the play. There's so many sex jokes too. Like that's so modern. They toned it down a lot and they t edited out some scenes that were more scandalous too. Like when Edith was just given birth and she had to like, she was talking on the phone and she had to like, oh, just, just, just wait a second. And she like blows ash off of her baby's like newborn baby's nose from her cigarette that she's smoking currently. Yeah, a lot of it was of that stuff was taken out. Well, because it had to fit into production code. Production code was in effect. And what was hilarious to me is the joke, he could crack a coconut with those knees if he could keep them together, made it through. Because I sat there going, is that... Because he's a cowboy. I did not interpret it that way. Because <laughs> he's got bow legs. He can't close well, his legs. Well, I'm just a pervert. No, I thought it meant he was packing. Double entendre. But it works on both levels. Maybe she did mean that. Both levels. But apparently, and I don't know if you guys read this piece of trivia too, so I need to lose. So like apparently because of production codes had to like sit nearby and like make sure everything they said was okay. But because we had so many fabulous, hilarious comedic women ad-libbing, basically she wasn't needed to replace the jokes because the actresses are just hilarious. And, I, and she was that. like, my job's easy. It was no hard job. They're so hilarious. They did it themselves. Well, it felt like they were playing volleyball. Yeah. Like, again, I appreciated Joan Crawford so much more this time. Yeah. She was great in this role. She goes yeah. there. She, like, leans hard into the hate of it all and makes Crystal real. And, like, even Mary. Mary could be a shitty role. The only person I think fails because I think the character is so terrible is Peggy. Yeah. Peggy is insufferable. I'm sorry. She's insufferable. No. No Awful. one wants to be her. She's terrible. But 
Mary, like Norma Shearer does such a good job with Mary. And it, maybe it's the writing too, but like you really like her. Like she is one of us. She gives you that vibe. And I think it's because they cast Norma Shearer, who is like famous for being both like spunky and like can be of the people, but also like played sexually liberated women. So because she's walking in with that kind of baggage in tow, but yeah, I guess even as a modern viewer, even not knowing it, you get the free soul sense from her. That Katherine Hepburn, like similar, she wore pants. I mean, one of the first scenes she comes in wearing pants. And it's silly. She's like mucking about with her kid and like falls over and like shows us her butt for a minute in a silly way. That scene happens directly directly after the very first scene in the hair salon where all the chatty women and blah, 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 you can't make them out. They're doing silly things. And then it cuts to Mary on a horse and hanging out with her kid, like a real person having a real relationship with her child. She's a real person having a real conversation. She does cartwheels. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's such a direct contrast in the country, in nature. But also she's going over her family history with her kid. Like they're looking at pictures and she's like, this was when we did this and your dad and I were so happy. They got trapped in a cabin and they're hinting at like, oh no, we had a very lovely time being snowed in in our cabin. But it's the opposite of gossip. So you're right. The first scene we see is like just all of the quote unquote like low things women can be and all the shallow things that they care about. And then we get like the real things. And that's why it's so ironic that Steven would turn down the real thing because he has this woman who finds hobbies with him. She learned to fish with him. They go camping together. He has like a loving, supportive partner and equal. And he says no to that. He says no to it because of a fucking midlife crisis. Well, he can't help it. <laughs> but he can't it. help it. He can't help it, Sarah. According to her mother, the only way a man can feel young is through the eyes of a young woman. <sighs> I can't. I just hate, like, I hate Steven. I'm so mad at him throughout the film. Yeah, Steven's a schmuck. When we're hearing the fight, the exposition fight, which is a great scene, by the way, to turn a horrible conversation about divorce comedic, they have the maids breaking it down for us, and it's so good. Love, Love that, that scene. scene. But so good. Steven's comebacks are lame as fuck. When he's like, I was a good husband to you. I'm like, excuse, no, no, no. You need to talk about the cheating. That's a big fucking deal. Groveling needs to happen. Trust needs to be established. When he sends her that card where he's like, what can I say? I'm like, oh, it's not about words, motherfucker. It's about actions. It was like eye rolls. I go, oh, brother, like, <laughs> what can I say? It's like, shut up, Steven, just shut up. Shut up, dude. Steven. I hated him. I want to see the movie where she moves on from him and lives a better life without him and exactly. finds new love. But that's not <sighs> this movie. That's not this film. With, with, with Crystal. Crystal. With Crystal. With, I want yes. Frank Crystal to realize their feelings for each other and have a great relationship together. Exactly. Right up on horseback. And Crystal becomes like the CEO of a company because she's got all this awesome ambition. Yeah. There you go. She'll run that department store. Yes. yes. She, be, she becomes, you know, Montgomery Ward. Well, because she know. knows what people actually want and how to, like, convince them to buy product. We figured this out. We need to write this. <laughs> if you want to be a wife and a mother, like, no shade on that. Go do that. But, like, mm -hmm. don't force everyone to do that just because you want to do that. Like... We should yeah, all have yeah, the absolutely. freedom to pursue, that we have the right to our pursuit of happiness. We should all like be able to, <laughs> you know, pursue what we want. And so like, yes, no problem if that's what you do want. Like, I get it. No judgment. But 
again, women should be allowed to hold the same rights as men. And I shouldn't have to say this in 2021. Well, it's the notion again of what Claire Booth Luce was saying. Like there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a career woman. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be a wife and mother. The problem is the undertone of this writing and what Claire Booth Luce would talk about, which is, but that's all women really want. Right. And therefore we should only let them do that. So it's speaking on behalf of all of us and confining us to only that choice is the problem. And condoning terrible behavior in men and saying it's normal and okay when it's not. Like it's not and okay. So, and it's, it's a yes. women's problem. It's a women's yeah. problem to, to Ooh, worry right. about. <sighs> and the keeping your man and fighting for your man and all of that nonsense. It just cut deep every time. Yeah, what Miriam speech at the end, it's like, you're a coward, you're a coward. You left him to the devices yeah. of that woman alone and afraid you left him defenseless. defenseless. You're a coward for leaving him in his hour of need and not fighting for her, not for him, fighting her because he's just a hapless baby. A hapless baby who like runs a company. Again, I cannot oh, yeah. stress this enough. Right, he runs his architecture firm. Someone is smart enough to like be the only person to make your income and go out in the world, but stupid enough that he can't talk to a woman and figure out like what the hell is going on in that situation. It makes me very upset. I get very upset <laughs> with this hapless man <laughs> trope. Okay, I do want to talk about um, Norma Shearer. Well, first of all, wait, mm -hmm. George Cukor is the director. Lovely director. Mm -hmm. Let me read you some of his films. He did win the Academy Award for Best Director for My Fair Lady. He directed The Philadelphia Story. He directed Gaslight, Born Yesterday, A Star is Born, Adam's Rib, Pat and Mike, Holiday, Camille, Little Women, with the one with Katherine Hepburn. And um, Dinner at Eight, those are some of his films. Anyone recognize a strong through line throughout those films? Strong women. <laughs> yes. Didn't he also, like, for a day, direct Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind? It was like a famous story about him getting fired from Gone with the Wind. Because everybody in right. Hollywood directed Gone with the Wind. Everybody, every director in Hollywood yeah. in 1939 has Gone with the Wind uncredited director in their bio. Every single one. Um, <laughs> they were all there. They visited the set for a day. Yeah. But that's kind of his story with Wizard of Oz. It was like he visited the set for a day. But they all were kind of doing that. So yeah. there's a lot of, like, uncredited work happening. But um, yeah, he was famously fired from Gone with the Wind. Actually, he wanted, him and David Oselznik wanted Paulette Goddard to be Scarlett O'Hara. She plays Miriam Ahrens in this. And um, they were like fighting for her and the studio wouldn't allow it because she was secretly married to Charlie Chaplin, but people didn't know that. They thought she was just like sleeping around with him. And they were like, that would be too scandalous. We cannot have someone of that like moral character in our picture. So she lost out on the part because of that. Well, she has an NYU dorm named after her now, though. So She made it. And she was like a sassy socialite in the 80s in the end. Her life is really fascinating. I mean, we can get into We'll get into her in a minute. But George Cukor, the other cool thing about him, I mean, he, he was gay. And you weren't really, quote unquote, allowed to be out. Like, he was out, but not really. But he had like a gay um, salon, kind of. Like, a lot of gay friendships that met in his space, which I think is really cool. He mainly does like comedies and literary adaptations. Um, and he's known for being a quote unquote women's director because he always gets these really strong female performances out. And he hated that. He hated being known <laughs> as a women's director. Great. Um, he loves Katherine Hepburn. They're great buddies. They do a lot of pictures together. I think that's great. Um, I wrote that he was born on the Lower East Side of New York City to Hungarian Jewish immigrants. And I was like, OMG, that's my family background. <laughs> my family were Hungarian Jewish immigrants, but they were in Brooklyn. Um, 
Hey. And um, so he was like, he came up through the Broadway scene. He was part of a troupe of actors, uh, like he directed and was part of a troupe. And one of them was Phyllis Pova, who plays Edith in this. And she was in the Broadway version of The Women. But I wanted to shout out that she went to the University of Michigan. She's from Detroit. She went to University of Michigan. Go, Go blue. blue. So that's great. They were buddies. And so she's in this. Um, but he does a lot of Broadway shows, eventually signs with a studio. Um, and then he, he was fired from Gone with the Wind was one of the things I wrote down. Um, he was actually arrested on vice charges for being gay at one point and the studio expunged it from the records wow he sounds like a pretty cool guy you know like there's no shitty stories about him like the fact that he can hold relationships with strong women tells me a lot oh he had beef with betty davis though she was like a bit player in the theater company that he had and apparently she was very opinionated she says she was fired he says she wasn't but they never worked together again after the theater company so they he never directed her they also were at different studios so like you know that's a thing but i just think that's that's really funny he was like she would play ingenues and felt the need to tell you when she felt something was wrong and i'm like good for her i think that's right so that's george kikor Norma Shearer. Oh, what a badass. I like her so much. Oh my God. Her real life story. She's so cool. She was like one of the big stars of the day. She's a little bit before the time that I'm knowledgeable about. Like she came up in silent films and her big film that got her into movie star status was a film called The Divorcee in 1930. And it was when she transitioned from being like the good girl to being someone that was like sexually liberated. So love her. Um, Some of her famous films are Marie Antoinette, The Divorcee. She won the Oscar for Best Actress for that film. A Free Soul, which is kind of how she's like described throughout her career. The Barretts of Wimpole Street, Romeo and Juliet, Smiling Through, Riptide, Private Lives. All of those were some of her pictures. She was married to Irving Thalberg, who was the uh, head of production at MGM. I I think she's a badass and she like clearly went through a lot to get to where she was. But a lot of people say her career was so good because she was married to the head of the studio. In fact, hold on. Oh, please tell me you wrote it down. Joan Crawford had a really bitchy quote about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Joan Crawford's quote, (laughs) how can I compete with Norma when she's sleeping with the boss? That's a real life Joan Crawford quote about competing with Norma for roles. So it mirrors the women. She's considered a feminist pioneer. Um, She explored love and sex with honesty and frankness on film. She was turned down by everybody. When she was growing up, she wanted to be a Ziegfeld girl. She has like an unusual look, but it's still like attractive and gorgeous. But she went to Ziegfeld and Ziegfeld turned her down and called her a dog to her face. Awesome. Yeah, what an ass. She went to physical therapy to build up her eye muscles so that they would match better on screen. So she would do like... I work like I yoga because she had like a lazy eye or like she was a little cross-eyed but she worked she did all these things right so she models in commercials and that's kind of where she starts um in 1923 she meets Louis B. Mayer she comes off as someone who is confident and apparently she worked very hard at that she converted to Judaism to Mary Thalberg didn't know that till today her brother I think worked on this picture Douglas Shearer was a sound guy and I saw his name in the credits I think he was on this picture she has six Academy Award nominations so her husband Irving Thalberg passes away very young he's like 37 and um she's still like in the prime of her life and making movies this is this happens I think before this movie came out and um MGM 
didn't want to pay royalties from his films to his estate because he died. And she was like, um, no, that's not happening. You, he made this work. You need to pay his estate. And they were like, no. And so she went to a gossip columnist. She went to Luella Parsons, told her the story. It got published and she ended up getting her rightful money. She got that paper. I was like, oh, it's just like the movie because that's how they resolve everything in this. It's always through gossip columnist. And then in this interim, after her husband passes, she briefly dates Jimmy Stewart and George Raft. And I was like, mm. oh, that's fun. Mm. And then she retired tires in 1942 oh and she still signs a contract with mgm so she fights them and then also signs a contract with them because they're like well she does make money (laughs) (laughs) so that's pretty badass um but yeah she retires in 1942 marries um a ski instructor named martin arruger yeah he's 11 years younger than her and they are married until she dies she dies in 1983 same year as george cukor oh but they're married until she dies. And fun fact, this is not on her Wikipedia page. I know this from Turner Classic Movies. She discovered Janet Lee at a ski resort. With her yes, young husband. with her hot young husband. <laughs> and she's totally selfless. She's like, oh my God, this girl looks really cool. She championed her. And Janet Lee has a career because of Norma Shearer. That's awesome. That's amazing. And then we have Jamie Lee and Curtis. And then we have Jamie Lee Curtis. So all of that because of Norma Shearer. But she was just so generous with herself. Like she's a really... She's a really cool person, really free spirit. Thanks, Norma. This is great. Women helping women and women rising up. <laughs> and like she's told she's ugly by everybody. And it's like, you know what? I have something in myself and I know I can do this. And she does. And it's great. So that's her. And then Paulette Goddard is our final person I kind of want to go into. And she's the opposite. She was a Zigfield girl. So her whole story is like her parents got divorced real young. She and her mom had to like support each other. Like she had to financially help support her family at 13. Um, She becomes a Zigfield girl in the chorus, just like her character in this movie. She like solves her problems by getting married. She gets married at 17 to a much older man. Gets divorced in Reno, like, two years later, just, like, in this movie. And then she ends up, like, meeting Charlie Chaplin and having a relationship with him. And he, I don't know if he picks her to be in Modern Times with him, but she's in Modern Times with him. And he's, like, his perfect partner in that piece. And he writes parts for her. So, like, he writes a part in The Great Dictator for her. And um, they were good friends. Like, they end up getting divorced uh, a couple years later. He's supportive of her career, and when they part, they part amicably. I forgot to look up if she's in the film Chaplin, like if they portray her as a character in Chaplin. Oh, I remember. I was thinking that about the cat's meow. Uh, Oh, and she formed a production company with John Steinbeck in 1949. In the late 50s, she retires to Switzerland. Oh, she was also married to Burgess Meredith, who people at home may know from Rocky. He was Rocky's trainer. Just a fun fact. Um, he was in many other things. In 1958, she retired to Switzerland. She marries this guy, Eric, Eric, oh, I remark. I wrote it down funny. When he passes away, he's very wealthy, leaves her all his money. She returns to New York and is a wealthy socialite in the 80s and hangs out with Andy Warhol. And she's just like sassy and all around a hell of a lot of fun. And I appreciate that. I was looking it up, like being your judo producer, and she's not featured as a character in The Cat's Meow, for anyone who's seen the 2001 movie, The Cat's Meow, but in the 92 Chaplin movie that you were asking, she is a character played by the wonderful and lovely Diane Lane. Oh, that's good casting. Oh. That's great casting. Oh, that's fun. Thanks for that looking that casting. up. I haven't watched that movie in a long time. Now we have to. The sets are lush, expensive, stunning, very grand. It's fun to look at. 
everything looks beautiful on the film. I actually preferred the black and white film to the color sequence. Like I thought it looked more expensive. It looked more rich. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we said this earlier, there's no men in this film and we don't miss them. We have conversations with people where it's like one-sided, where it's we know that the woman is talking to a man, but we never hear men's voices. I'm going to say the first time I watched this film, I didn't even notice that there were not men in it. Someone had to, I think the commercial said it. I think I watched the preview another time and it was like a film with all women. And I went, oh my God, really? I didn't even, you don't think about it. The script is so witty and quick and well done. And the characters, oh my God, the characters are so fun. We briefly touched on this, how the character actresses, I think, steal the piece. Oh, Oh, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. If you were in this, who would you want to be? And my main ideas were like, okay, I might want to be Miriam if I was in this because she has so many fun one-liners. Um, I might want to be Crystal, again, the one-liners, but what Zoe did, if you could take every single one of those funny character actresses and just be all of them and that's a part, that would be the most fun. Like being the manicurist technician from Brooklyn, like being that sassy friend, the sassy single friend who had all the great one-liners in the beginning. Nancy, Nancy, she was great. Nancy has a much bigger part, I, if I remember right, in the in the play. She's has a much more substantial role and contributes some of that feminist undertones that they cut a lot. All, all of like, I think she had like a heart to heart with Mary. There's a scene and they do the Shakespeare sonnet because like they and like she gives her a book. She supports everything Mary says. Yeah. Like it's cut. The one non-gaslighting person. She was maybe my favorite. When I was writing in the beginning, yeah. I was like, I like her. I like yeah. everything she's saying. She's the only one that stands up for Mary ever. Do you know what I mean? Like Mary as she is. Yeah. She's the only person to stand up for her. Yeah. Maybe they were like, ooh, audiences, they're not going to be able to handle all women on the screen. And you know, the worst thing possible is an old maid. We can't have her in the movie too much. And we can't show a woman really supporting a woman without a man. We can't show that. We just can't do it. I think playing Sylvia will be really fun. Although I don't think I would ever be cast as Sylvia. I think probably Sarah's correct. And I probably would be a Miriam more than anything else. I would love to think that I'd be Crystal Allen, but no one would ever cast me as Crystal Allen either. I would be a Sylvia or a Miriam. I was like, ooh, Sylvia might be fun. And then my brain went, too much energy. No, no, that's too hard. (laughs) I'd be tired. (laughs) Just give me a couple one-liners and I'm good. I would love to play Sylvia. I just adore that part so much. But a part of me also, because it was my senior year play, there's a part of me that just would love to play Mary again because it's a special place. I mean, I have it on VHS tape in my basement. Nice. And being older now, too, of like getting the opportunity to play it with actual life experience. I feel the same way about Wind in the Willows. <laughs> um. Oh, and then I just want to bring up some side notes before we go full double feature. Three things I noticed. One, <laughs> can we talk about Crystal's bathtub? How did they get that past sensors and the code? She's naked in a bathtub and we see the water, but we don't see her body. So I'm like, oh, how did they do that? And how did they get all this past code? Even in the beginning, when they're in the beauty parlor and the women getting their massages, there's like, you know, equipment strategically placed. And I was like, these women are naked. I wonder if it's like, because, well, there's no men around, so no sex. So this nudity is fine. They panned back from a different angle and they 
they were wearing these little like white briefy things over them. So, cause I thought that too. And I was like, oh, scandalous. They are naked. And then they switched the shot a different angle. And I went, oh no, they got these weird like things on their butts. They're, they're not naked. But yeah, cause you see the water. I was like, oh my God, it's a clear bathtub. And it's very intense. It's that like what, it was like a ship or like a wave. It looked like you're on the waves and the foam. In the middle of the room and then the curtain goes down for the shower. A phone in the bathtub. People are so dumb. Why do you think she wants a phone in the bathtub? All you dummies. It's just, I love that Rosalind Russell's character gets her comeuppance. And I love just that she won't quit getting information. It's just so fun to watch. She will do whatever it takes. I don't think they do this in the movie, but it's in the play that consistently throughout Sylvia is going, well, as my analyst would say, yeah. I can't, like constantly is like talking about her analyst. She also talks a lot about her cesarean scars in the show. Yes. And, that's, and that's not talked about in the movie, except once when she's doing exercise with lift up, lift together, lift side. That's the only time it's like, oh, my scars. And that's like it. And the play is everywhere. They had her get a cesarean because she's rich. Do you think that was the implication too? That maybe you would get a cesarean section if you're rich versus like... I think she was considered unique because she had the scars. Because she was always talking about them and the other women weren't. Okay. So I don't know. I was like, oh, my scars. Um, there are two other moments. And then I'm going to ask you guys if you have any moments that you want to like just be like, oh my God, that was a moment. Um, One big one for me. When little Mary finds out her parents are getting divorced... And she's like, Mother, I have to go wash my hands in the bathroom. And she goes in the bathroom. (laughs) And this poor child actress, because she is bringing it, okay? She's, those are real tears. She is bringing it. But her dialogue, I love it when you can see on an actor's face that they think what they're saying is stupid. And she thinks it's so stupid. She goes, Mother, Mother dear, Father dearest. No, she goes, Daddy, 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 darling. Mother, mother dear, do something, mother darling, do something. I'm like, oh, I'm so Worst sorry. That was written dialogue for you. ever. She hates it, but she's bringing it. She's like, I'm working with it. Notice my natural acting in this real moment. I can't help it that this is the dialogue. But like, even just letting little Mary improv or just letting her cry would have been enough. Why did they have so to do better. that to this poor young actress? Right. They cut so many good things from the script, but they kept that because that is the line reading. I checked it. It was rough and I felt it. (laughs) My last thing of fun I wanted to point out is I was coveting Mary's ring so bad. She has the coolest ring on her right hand. It's like this giant square. I don't know what it is. It's so big. Beautiful. It's the expanse of her of half her finger. Yep, it was oh, really cool. It. So I just wanted to point that out. And also when she takes off her her shower cap, I, I always think that's fascinating when the people, because, you know, you couldn't wash her hair the in the shower, you know, so she had the shower cap and she ripped it off and her hair was perfect. And I was like, whoa, I loved that. When she even messed up her own hair, like she grabs her own hair as somebody whose hair cannot mm-hmm. do that. I was yeah. like, yes, fascinated 100%. by it. <laughs> so let's, so we're doing uh, Claire Booth Loose and the directors of 1939 movies, a real solid that the things we're noticing are hair. <laughs> well, we covered all the important shit and they put that in there for us. Cause they, remember they're like, what do women <laughs> yeah. like? They want cool gowns and sets and hair and makeup. Cause none of us have that in real life. So we need to see it on screen. Cause we don't have it. A fun piece of trivia. To, and it's also super meta 
was that like the studio, like for marketing this movie, they couldn't like do all the stuff of romance between the leads like they normally would do. Cause oh no, it's all women. What are we going to do? So they made up all these lies about like catty behavior on set to promote the movie. Because of course, if it's a movie with all women, that's horrible. But George Cukor even came out saying like, no, when you're a star, you're like, you know what you're doing. That doesn't actually happen. Yes. Super meta. They didn't know what to do. So of course women are being catty on set in a movie about all women being catty. Which again, we established earlier (laughs) in my experiences working with women, it's actually incredibly like lovely and wonderful and everything gets done. It's so efficient and thoughtful and wonderful (laughs) in my experience. Uh, I mean, I've worked in tech for 10 years. I've often been the only woman in a room and I'm about to start a job where it's only women in the entire company. My interview process was so different. Again, I've so, not that I've never worked with other women, but much of my career until the last say three to four years, predominantly men, usually, especially because I'm in tech leadership, the only people I interview with are men. And actually the day before I was interviewing with a guy who's like 10 years younger and asked me if the reason I moved across the country was for a significant other. (sighs) And like in 2008, he was in high school. And then, you know, when he graduated from college only a mere like five years ago, he went right into being a founder because he's a finance bro. So he's asking me about a job that I had in 2008. That was a survival job. that I was just grateful to have to put food on the table, which was a lifetime ago, personally and professionally. And he's like judging my like, Anyway, all this to say, my interview process with this company was night and day from so many experiences. Everybody was so warm. Everybody's just talking and sharing ideas. So absolutely. I was president of our women's group at my last job. I can tell you, like when you actually get women in a room, you get to actual solutions to problems faster because nobody, everyone's trying to work together to solve a problem, not be heard. It's not ego driven. Yeah. It's okay. I have to just shout this out. Um, one of my friends who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, Rookie, she had written this and I can't stop thinking about it because she wrote it a couple years ago, like on her social media about what it feels like as a woman to talk about movies with men. And so, and I, I have felt this myself because I feel like I, I added this part of it, but it's, when you talk to men about movies, it feels like this is how the conversation goes. Oh, you're a woman. You like movies. Name every movie I've ever seen. Oh, you can't. Then you don't know movies. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. When you talk about <laughs> movies with women, it's collaborative and building. It's, oh, what do you like? What are you into? Like, tell me about that. Let's talk about that. So it's more collaborative experience where you build an idea and more gets done versus like showing off. Have you seen the movies I've seen? No. Like, but you expect me to have seen all yours and know everything and have opinions on them when they're not even written for about by me like I don't care about those stories as much ever since she said it a couple years ago I can't stop thinking about it because I'm like oh my god she's right right have you watched the women well it happens like in dating I mean it's why like we struggle with dating like if a woman says she likes sports that has to prove how she likes sports 2021 modern lens Let's put it on so many things. I mean, I wrote down the, just the ones that I wrote down. All of um, it. The message of the film I wrote down <laughs> doesn't work. They make, like, there was, like, a weird Native American comment they made at one point that I was like, I don't understand this. Yeah, and, yeah this, they, like, the sign. So I wrote that down, and I wrote, like, just the racism in general, like, just the, the only people of color in it are in serving positions. Mm-hmm. That's not great. Yeah. And like the white privilege in general, the jungle red, I was like, is this, 
is this okay? I, I don't know if Jungle Red, what that implies. What I imagine with Jungle Red is like, it's the animal, like, harken okay. back is what I immediately thought of, but- There's a good chance it's racist. Chances are, it's 1939, probably racist. Um, I wrote spousal abuse is not good. Please don't do this. Yeah. Like men not being held accountable for their actions, that doesn't hold up. I did write, oh, bad people are racist. Okay, and they don't tip. So, you know, um, <laughs> and then ooh, the, the girl fight didn't hold up very well. We didn't even talk about that because why talk about it? It's stupid. Yeah, I just had a note, fight scene, ridiculous. I hate it. One of the famous quotes of this film, if you guys have quotes you want to read, please, this is the chance to read them. But the famous quote of the film is, um, it's taken me two years to grow claws, mother. Jungle red. In the play, it's different. In the play... <gasps> It's actually the last line of the entire play. And I believe, yes, well, I've, and she's not even talking to her mother because it is the fight scene, but it, in the play, it is the very last line and it's ever so slightly different, which is, well, I've had two years to sharpen my claws. Jungle red, Sylvia. Good night, ladies. Ooh. And then she exits. It obviously depends on the director and how they choose to play it, because what's in the stage directions is actually, it ends with Sylvia and Crystal fighting. Like, no lines, but they're like, they've turned on each other, because yeah. now they, they can't be friends either now. Right, women can't be friends. That's so sad, though. Like, to encourage not being friends with women, <laughs> because they might stab you in the back for a man. I mean, that's depressing and untrue. Oh, other line. Well, obviously, I like the crack the coconuts, even though I clearly misinterpreted <laughs> my dirty mind. What maybe it no, was about. you might not have. That might have been accurate. I just might be so square that I was like, he's a cowboy. He can't. His knees don't touch. Other one I love is with the exercise instructor, Mrs. Fowler. You've hardly moved a muscle. Whose carcass is this? Yours or mine? It's yours, but I'm paid to exercise it. You sound like a horse trainer. No, Mrs. Fowler, but you're getting warm. It's great. Also, I do want to specify, we didn't talk about the Jungle Red being nail polish. Earlier in the film, just in case people are like confused, uh, the Jungle Red is the nail polish that all of the women are getting at the top of the film. And that's how Sylvia, through her manicurist, hears the news about Mary and she keeps telling everyone to go to this manicurist so they hear the gossip as well. And they all have Jungle Red nails. So it's like the cat fight, the Jungle Red, that's what that is in case at home you did not watch this. Hi, mom. And you didn't want to understand that moment better. There's so many good quotes. The dialogue is so sharp and witty and fun and everybody gets a chance to shine. And it's really, except for people of color, I'm, I'm sorry. And they don't really get a chance to shine. But besides all the white people get a chance to shine at some point in yeah. the film. And there were a lot of people that become famous that were in small roles, like Virginia Gray and Ruth Hussey. Yeah. And there are a lot of people. I, did, I wrote them down, but I'm not flipping to that page. This was so much fun. We're going to head into the double feature portion of the program. If you liked this movie, here are some other movies to maybe check out. And it's hard to pair it because it's like, I don't want to be like, watch this sexist film as well. But I feel like Stage Door is a very good pairing with this. It's a cast mainly of women. Um, in the end, women support women in that film, but it's not really a comedy. It's kind of incredibly melodramatic, actually. But I, I feel like that would be a good pair with this. Um, I also wrote, because Kyle Sorillo would shoot me if I didn't say this. 
The Opposite Sex, the musical version of this film that currently has a 20% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So that tells you something. I've never seen it the whole way through because I couldn't watch it. <laughs> so maybe it's good. June Allison's in it. It has a good cast. I feel like Ann Miller's in it, but it's from the 50s and it is a musical remake. And it, I think you, sh- you can only watch it ironically is what I'm maybe going to say. But that might be fun. Um, I also wrote down, like, uh, The Divorcee, which was that Norma Shearer picture. That might be great. Sounds like they're about similar topics, and it showcases her. Um, Woman of the Year, a Hepburn and Tracy picture about how she wins the Woman of the Year award, but she ignores her husband in the process. But it's still, you know, they're still strong women. Um, oh, Libeled Lady is a great film in general. Screwball comedy, Myrna Loy, Spencer Tracy, William Powell, Jean Harlow. Um, great cast and basically like a woman is libeled in the paper and she like fights the paper on it. It's a whole thing, but it's, you know, similar themes. Um, the Lady Eve has a manipulative woman and it's fun and it's a comedy. My favorite wife, women fighting for a husband that they're both married to. The Palm Beach story, great divorces, great fun, silly silliness. Those are all my double features. What Do you guys have any films that you think would go really well with this? Or it kills me later when I think of the perfect pair after the podcast. This has happened twice when I thought of the perfect movie to watch something with and then I didn't say it. I was struggling like because I was like, oh, I didn't want to do just other like classic films, even though like watch His Girl Friday simply because like just watch the amazing SL Rosalind Russell. So if you want a movie, though, of today that I think is doing a great job in talking about women an actual way of thinking about how men behave is watch Promising Young Woman. I really liked Promising Young Woman. Highly recommend. Powerhouse performance written by a woman. And it's so smart. And it handles men being held accountable for their actions, unlike the women. So, So that would be if you just like, and now for something completely different. Well, and it plays with the tropes of those men too. So it plays with the tropes of like, ah, oh, this nice, lovable guy next door. He can also be a monster. And she and she purposely cast actors who have a reputation for being nice guys to like, again, be meta about those types of roles. So it's not at anything like the women, but there's something that's a nice pairing. Um, I feel like a moment that's kind of important in this film is when Mary first goes to Reno and she meets the Countess and she meets Miriam and they are sitting at a table and there's a line one of them has about like, oh, you married your husband for his character, right? How'd that turn out for you? And they each married their husbands for different reasons and they're all getting a divorce. So it's kind of this idea that it could happen to anyone because it's clear that Miriam married her husband for money. Also, I love that she's like, the likable crystal. I love that they define that of like, yeah. crystal's terrible, but we like Miriam. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing the same things, but mm-hmm. it's okay because it's Miriam. And then um, the Countess married for sex, like romance and, you know, and then Mary married for love and they're here they all are getting divorced. So it doesn't, I love that idea of like, it doesn't really matter what you get married for. It can still end in divorce and men can be scum. Yep. <laughs> it's like, so, so again, so contradictory. Is she actually saying men are trash? Hey. <laughs> also, sorry, men. And I know that there are men listening yeah. at home. And you're, you, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you are very like solid in yourself and you're not <laughs> toxic and we love you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, like just the patriarchy in general, this toxic masculinity vibe of what yes. a man should be, I think is what we're yes. reeling against of like this. Yes, you should cheat on your wife. That makes you a man and it's totally okay to do it. And you don't have to be held accountable for it. It's your right as an American, as a white man who's straight, cis straight white man. Yeah, there you go. Okay, 
with this straight white man. <laughs> we have wrapped up this piece. Just as they would want it, they get the last word. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for being here. This was so much fun. And we'll see you next time, even though we won't see you, but I don't have a better catchphrase than this. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Zoe Palco and Brianne Wilson. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even become a sustaining member by finding our page on anchor.fm. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for awesome content and to find out what movie we're watching next. Don't you want to know? Everyone wants to know. You could know by following us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>